Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our series on joy, and today we're talking about prayer. The question for you all to get started with is, what does prayer mean to you? Enjoy. We're in this series in Philippians, and today we're going to talk about the joy of prayer, which I haven't talked about in a long time. Uh, That we're in a community of people, I'm sure that your spiritual practices have changed over the years. They may have even changed over the last few months. Uh, And what prayer once meant to you maybe means something different to you now, and that's okay. I think the thing that we always want to reclaim in a place like New Abbey is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, That just because something didn't work for you in a specific way over here doesn't mean that it's still not useful for you. The reason that we have a church like New Abbey, even in our name, is that our name means this, that we are a community of faith, which is an abbey. Our our mission statement is a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2019, that we still care about the Jesus part. We still care about Christian tradition. We still care about the Bible. We still care about the church. We still care about faith. We just want to say it in a way that actually matters in 2019. And that's what I think why we're all here, is that we're trying to figure out how does this thing actually work for our life? And I think prayer is something that's incredibly important and powerful and can be practical, but we have to get rid of some of the other stuff and start thinking about it in some new ways. So to do that today, my friends, I've invited Sissy Brady Rogers with me, everyone. If you don't know Sissy, she has one of the foulest mouths in our church, so yes. Praise be to God. Yes, yes. Her favorite word is the F word, and that is not faith or forgiveness. So, no big deal. So to talk about prayer, we're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about good news, and then we're going to do a little bit of a play-by-play. And then if we can do a play-by-play, we're going to talk about simplicity, how we get back into complexity. After we've done all of the work of complexity, how do we come on the other side to simplicity Again, and then once we do that, we're going to talk about belovedness, and then we're going to talk about self-love is like, dot, 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 can't wait for that one, because it's going to be interesting, and then we're going to talk about Dave, uh, and then we're going to reclaim some things as we think about prayer. So in the ancient world, most people were anxious all of the time, and they were anxious all of the time because there was a thousand different gods. Imagine that your understanding of the world is that there's all these gods out there that you need to please, but you don't know what these these gods want. That's incredibly stressful for the way that you live your life. Are you being blessed right now because some of these gods are happy? Are you being cursed right now because some of these gods are angry at you? You don't ever know where you stand with the gods. It's a stressful way to live your life. And I don't think it's that much different than many of us have lived our lives now with this God. That we've been grown, that we've been raised in a world where we don't always know where we stand with God. We don't even know, take God out of the equation, where do we just stand in the world? Who are we as human beings? I only got 89 likes last time, and last time I got 121! Do people not like me anymore? Did I just post at the wrong time? Is this like an algorithm issue, or should I have like... Used more filters. <laughs> Some guilty, guilty laughter here. There's all kinds of things about our culture that we don't know where we stand, and we live in anxiety, and we live in worry. 
And we don't know how to talk about our anxiety, and we don't know how to talk about our worry, and what it eventually leads to is resentments. That these things build up in us, and we begin to create narratives and stories about other people and about ourselves and who we believe God to be, and it becomes very heavy, I think, for a lot of people just trying to navigate the waters of what it means to be human. So something interesting happened 2,000 years ago with this story is that for these ancient people, not knowing where they stand with the gods, Jesus was an incredibly different story for them. In this story, you knew exactly where you stood with God. The story is that God becomes human so that you would know where you stand. That God is pleased with you. That God loves you. That this God calls you this God's child that you don't have to do all of these sacrifices, that you don't have to jump through all of these hoops, that you don't have to play all of these games to make this God pleased with you. A line that's maybe overused in here, and I say it all of the time, Jesus did not come to change God's mind about you, but to change your mind about God. I want that to get deep within you. Because that story is that Jesus came so that you would know exactly where you stand with God. And you were beloved You have been beloved since the beginning of time. That when this God created everything, this God looked out at all of creation and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Humanity, you are made in my image. That is the thing that Jesus comes to reclaim and to redeem and to remind us of again and again and again so that human beings don't have to live into this anxiety of where do I stand in the world? You know exactly where you stand. This is the base in which you stand upon. This is the foundation in which you can now understand your life. And here's what's interesting about that. That if you lived in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman world, there was a very powerful God, and that was Caesar. That Caesar was seen as divine, and you always made sure that you wanted to please Caesar. You had to pay your taxes. You had to worship the Caesar. You had to let the Caesar know how amazing the Caesar was, because if not, the Caesar would kill you. The Caesar would make you suffer. And so when Jesus comes around, it's this. The story is not that you won't suffer, but that this God will suffer with you. Man, what a different way to live in the world now. That the gods aren't playing some cosmic game of cause and effect with me. That I don't know if I make a left or a right, if I did everything wrong and I'm stressed about everything that I do and I'm reading all of the tea leaves and following the breadcrumbs. That's just a horrible way to live. And in the narrative of Jesus, again, it comes back to, no, you know exactly where you stand. And in fact, where you stand is that this God stands with you, even in your deepest suffering, right? That you don't get to avoid that. And part of the bad theology that we've given over the last few hundred years is that, particularly from American theology, and we talk about this in here a lot, the waters that you swim in and the air that you breathe is that we are the most powerful group of people that the world has ever seen. So our theology on suffering is avoid it at all costs. You should not suffer. You are an American. And the story we sell you, even if you're in a marginalized group, is if you work hard enough and you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, the dream is that you'll make it to that upper echelon in that class one day where you won't suffer there. Those are the pearly gates. When you get to 62 and your retirement's flowing in, come on. But that's not real life. And even the church has promoted that, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, I will feel no evil, right? And you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You have to walk through suffering is the story that Jesus leads us into. And then Jesus walks through suffering first and invites us into that so that we don't have to live in a world of anxiety. So think about it this way. You're going to suffer. Okay, now we know it. You know where you stand, but you're not alone in that. 
What a different way to live your life versus every corner you turn, you wonder, am I going to suffer here now because I did the thing wrong? Now, maybe you're just being human, and that's totally okay, and this God knows where you're at, and this God wants to live into those anxieties and those worries and those resentments with you, and this God does that through prayer. This God does that as we walk with this God in this process, not because you need to pray to this God to please this God. How many of you prayed to God that way to please God when you were young? And if you didn't pray to God, you thought God maybe was angry at you. Yeah, there's a lot of head shaking right now. That's the world that I grew up in, right? There's a lot of things that I did because I just wanted to make God happy. And the message I was being told is, no, God's happy with you all the time. It's totally okay, but dot, 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 dot. Now, what if you live in the world where you know exactly where you stand with God and that when you pray, it's that you're praying with God in your suffering and in your joys and in everything else. It's not because God's going to move on the happy or sad scale, but because this God is just with you. And that's where we're moving this morning as we look into Philippians. So I want to talk with you where the passage is going, and then we're going to read it so you kind of have a heads up. So Paul in Philippians is constantly talking about joy, and he's talking about joy as he's in a prison setting. So Paul is saying this, I am suffering and I still have joy. Why do I still have joy? Because I know where I stand with God. I know the good news that I live in too, which is different than 99.9% of the Roman world, which were not seen as human beings. They were just the working class to make the top 1% feel good, right? That if you were a woman, you were not a human being. If you were a child, you didn't have a soul yet. If you were in any other place but a certain echelon, you weren't really fully human. And so the good news comes along and says, no, wherever you're at, you're already made in the image of God. It's a radically different story to start. And Paul says, that's why I have joy. Even in the midst of my suffering, I can be in prison and I see myself differently, right, than I would see myself otherwise. And so Paul lives into that joy, and then he starts this passage with this. Hey, there's a couple people, and they're in some arguments, and there's going to be conflict in life. How many of us have been there? You have a relationship that's going great, and then all of a sudden you just have one bad fight, and you're like, man, what what happened here? How many of us have been in, in relationships where we don't know how to reconcile the thing? And then we don't know how to put together, and it's even more painful when that thing happens in the church. Because the story is, I thought we had the biggest story possible that's supposed to reconcile us, and now even we can't reconcile this thing? Man, what hope is there for the rest of the world? And so Paul is saying, yeah, conflict is normal, but how do we live into that conflict in the midst of good news and in the midst of joy? And so Paul reminds us of joy again, and then Paul gets really practical. And Paul says, you should pray. You should bring these requests before God. And Paul will say this phrase that we'll read here in a minute. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Let me tell you how I interpret that passage. Worry about everything and don't pray about anything. And I read this passage this week and I was like old school word convicted, straight up convicted about how many worries that I have in my life. It's like it was on the radar now. Like I wake up at 6.30 a.m. and like my stress levels by 6.31 are right? By 6.32, I'm like scrubbing dishes in the kitchen, like, no, the the day is going to be okay, right? No. And I realized I worry about stuff all the time, and so I was just doing little tricks, like little tricks. I was praying, little tricks, right? (laughs) Excelsiamos or whatever, I don't know. I was simply praying all the time. I just tried it out. I'm like, I haven't done this in a long time. 
Prayer is honestly a really important part of my life, and I feel like the biggest part of prayer that I live into now is just awe and wonder and gratitude. Like, the world's an amazing place. Like, like, I was just at the coffee shop before this, and some guys were like, oh, man, you know, another day. And I was like, another day where the sun is shining, where we're breathing oxygen, and we have consciousness, my friend. Happy Sunday and cheers, and I walked out, right? Yeah. That happened 37 minutes ago. And the guy's like, yeah, that is pretty cool, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. Right. And that's a prayer that I participate in quite a bit. But a prayer that I, I sometimes think like, well, for so long in my life, I thought God was like a magic genie or Santa Claus, right? Or how I would pray about something, I just thought God would fix everything. And then when God didn't fix things, now I became resentful to God. Or it's like, maybe I didn't say it loud enough or enough times or I wasn't holy enough or I was thinking of a bad thought when I said that or there's all these other games playing that I'm playing with it. And now what I need to reclaim in my life is when I had some worries this week, it was just like, God, I'm honestly stressed about this. That was a text message. How many of you interpret text messages? Yeah. Oh, what was the tone there? Hello? How are you? Yeah. Hope your day's going well. Get off my back, man. You know? And but just saying, God, there's something with me right now. God, help me. What, what is it about this relationship that I'm so uptight about how they just texted me? God, would you be in the midst of that? So he talks about prayer, and then he says, maybe if there's just some things that we bring to God, how would that change our internal attitudes? That in the progressive and liberal communities, we're hot on meditation right now, right? Have you had your contemplative practices right now? Um, and that's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. And Paul's like, yeah, you should do this internal life. But you start with prayer. You start with this other source that reminds you of who you actually are and that you're beloved. You're not playing games with the divine. The divine has already clearly stated who you are. And when you live into that reality, now go meditate on some things. Allow that to seep deep within your bones. Allow that to get into you at a cellular level, my friends. And then from there, it says, now go put these things into practice. It says, if you can put these things into practice, imagine if you start with reminding yourself of who you are, allowing these things to seep in you, and taking these things externally into the world that you're going, imagine how that will come back into the areas of conflict in your life, or maybe even potentially prevent conflict. So there's a little commentary. Follow along with me in Philippians chapter 4. Now I appeal to E and S, because who can say those names? <laughs> because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Right? There's conflict that's to be had, but there's a bigger story that we're a part of here. Always be full in joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank God for all that God has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. God's peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true. After you've prayed about some stuff, now do some internal work. And honorable and right and pure and lovely and honorable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Because how many of us, for our lives, half of the battle is just our thought battle? That we're constantly thinking about negative things, right? And Sissy's going to get a lot to that later, so let me not preach for you. Forgive me that. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace 
will be with you. Conflict is normal. You won't avoid suffering, anxiety, conflict in this world. It's just going to happen. How do you still have joy in the fact that it's still going to happen? Not that you're happy about the circumstances, but you still have an ability to control your perspective and your reality or to ask for help in where you can't handle things on your own. If you can remind yourself of your belovedness, imagine how you can practice a life of internal contemplation or reminders that put deep within you the truth about who you actually are as a human being, who you are as loved by God. And if you can do that, imagine how you can put these things into practices and imagine what the world will look like because of it. So to think about that, I just want to do one last thing and think about simplicity. And then I want to go to complexity, and then I want to go to simplicity again. Simplicity at first is this. All lives matter, and we all know that's not true. We know it's not true when the world says it. People want to say that, but they don't understand the complexity of what they're saying when all lives matter. So then you go to the complexity of it, black lives matter. That you know that when you say black lives matter, you're not dismissing the fact that all lives matter. You're being real to the fact that there are some people when they get pulled over by a police officer are statistically more likely to be shot than I am. And their lives matter in a different way because for 400 years they were subjugated by the systems of this world. And so black lives matter because for centuries nobody said that black lives matter. You know that, you live into that complexity. We live in a world right now where every group is naming why they matter, and it's beautiful. Women, the LGBTQ community, right? The marginalized groups, the poor, whoever it is, are finding a voice in 2019, and it's a powerful thing. And a lot of what we're doing in that is like we're just like dividing up and naming every component of ourselves, right? It's like I'm a cis, gender, white, male, Enneagram 3, wing 2, social construct, ENTJ. These are my strengths finders. Like, is anyone overwhelmed by all the things? Yeah. I'm Corey. Corey here. Wing 2. You know? And I'm all about the complexity of that. And we should name the complexity of that and we should work through that because the truth is all lives don't matter over here. And we're naming why different human beings are valuable and important and why we care for them. But then there's this beautiful truth. After you go through this complexity of Black Lives Matter or whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is for you in finding your true identity and value and recognizing the true identity and value in every other human being, is you come back on the other side to this simplicity and it's all lives matter. It does not mean the same thing that that meant over there. This is true of prayer. This is what prayer meant for you over here in this simplicity, right? And then you read like two Richard Rohr books and you're like, I just meditate now and whatever, like... You go through a complexity and a letting go and a deconstructing. And honestly, don't mock that. I'm in that same journey with all of you. And you're asking new questions, even deeper questions. Oh, there's this massive, beautiful tradition of Christian faith that I can live into, and my prayers are just not Santa Claus prayers? Man, I want some of that. There are prayers in which I can honor the fact that I'm doing therapeutic work, and it honors my injuries, and it honors boundaries, and it's just not cheesy and trite prayers. Man, I want more of that. And then you come back to the other side of simplicity and you come to a place again of prayer matters. Right? You start over here in simplicity and it's just simply this. Jesus loves you. We're going to sing together right now. Are you ready? Jesus loves me.
come on, people, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, there we go. There you go. Uh, it's beautiful. Yes, come on, give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. I'm afraid that we're in a room of unbelievers. Yeah. It's true. So where we go from that is you sing that prayer, and then you get to a place of, I don't know who God is anymore, right? And I don't mock that. Thank God that you're going through that journey. And then for mature people like Sissy in this room, who've lived, seriously, who've lived some life, who've gone through some things, they come back out on the other side, and the truest thing about them is Jesus loves me. And that's not simplicity over there. It's a simplicity that came at a cost. And it comes with depth. And it comes with meaning. And it comes with beauty. Sissy Brady Rogers, everybody. One of the gifts that has come to me through all of you is knowing that belovedness. And in this last nine months, of living through the death of Dave, sudden death of my husband of 30 years um, in February is knowing my belovedness through other people. And really, that is what love is. Love is community. Love is relationship. Love is being engaged with other people. And through the hard work of conflict and relationship, learning we're loved. One of the things we know about uh, children and raising children is that it's not the absence of conflict or struggle or pain or suffering that helps a child develop a secure sense of their belovedness. It's actually the repair of the, the, the conflicts. It's when the child has a fit and the mom says something really mean and nasty and is like, oh my gosh, who is that? You know, but this, this dark part comes out and a parent does something really that they feel shamed about and guilty about. That's human. The repair is when the parent goes and says, oh, honey, I am so sorry. Mom, dad, whoever I am, uh, I said a really, that was wrong. That was mean. That was not right. And I am so sorry. And will you forgive me? That's how we learn love. It's not through being perfect. It's not through always doing and saying the right thing. It's actually through failing and working out the hard parts of our lives. Amen? And if you've been married for longer than two weeks, <laughs> you probably have had to figure that out. So knowing our belovedness comes through relationship. And when it comes to prayer, you know, anxiety isn't the problem. You know, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety isn't the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Because when we don't know we're loved, when we're not rooted and grounded in that place over here, and knowing without a shadow of a doubt, I am loved, I am lovable, my identity in Christ is that I am beloved. That's what enables us to endure the crazy shit that happens in life. 
We're all going to hit the mire. We're all going to go through circumstances that suck. It's knowing in our deepest identity that we are loved and lovable and, and just as we are, even when we're doing that awful, terrible thing that we regret the moment it happens. How many of you have been there? Any of you done anything you regret, feel awful, terrible, shameful, guilty, bad, 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 you're so, so bad? The internal dialogue starts, right? There is a state anxiety that we, when we grow up without a sense of our belovedness, that at our core we feel a sense of shame, a sense of I'm not okay. And the good news that Jesus came to give is that you are okay. You are loved just as you are. And that's the good news that wants to break into us. Anxiety is the symptom of the problem. And there's also circumstantial anxiety. So there's this internal state that a lot of us live in our whole lives of I'm not okay. Um, But there's also just the circumstances of life that come where you have the thoughts and the feelings. Um, I'm afraid that, you know, fill in the blank. Um, what if? I wonder, is it, is it possible that I'm going to? There are all these anxious kinds of things that come into our minds. And when we're disconnected from that state of belovedness, we respond like they did in the ancient world, trying to please the gods. Well, if I just work harder, if I just do more, if I just am perfect enough. So the survival self is all about trying to deal with anxiety by action. If I just work, do, do, do. And yet that never will get us to the place of calm, peace, internal security. The other way we deal with it is through avoidance of pain and seeking pleasure, right? Any other sevens out there on the Enneagram, right? We're all about like seeking the pleasure. Let's, you know, let's go smoke pot. Let's go have a drink. Let's go have sex. You know, whatever your favorite pain avoidance thing might be, you fill in your blank. <laughs> um, that's another way that the survival, the survival path of anxiety I either work harder, do more, or I seek pleasure and avoid pain. The path of belovedness brings us into the state of rest. When we're in anxiety, our actual physiology is all activated, and we're in this state of stress that leaves us disconnected from our core belovedness. And that's a state of tension where you're like this, and you're running as fast as you can to either do more or avoid the pain. But what we really need to get back to for our brains to actually function properly is this state of calm relaxation. Your brain is like Velcro for the negative. So physiologically, knowing where the beautiful lake with the fruit was did not have a high survival value on the Serengeti. What was more important was to know where the lion was. Because if you got eaten up by the lion, you'd never get to the lake. 
the brain is actually ev evolutionarily wired to be more capable of noticing negativity, which is why Paul talks about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. We have to work to create positive neuronal pathways that can actually notice what is good. It's, 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 it's a brain process that we actually have to work on and develop. So while the brain is like Velcro for the negative, it's like Teflon for the positive. So something good happens, right? And it's like, shh, it just slips away. So we have to focus our brains and train our minds. And that's part of what prayer does. But first, in order to get to remembering and thinking about what is good, we have to clear this anxiety. So anxiety needs to be named. Anxiety is like this undifferentiated emotional blah, right? You felt that. You've had that blah, and it shows up in all kinds of different ways. We have to take the time to name it. So what is it for you? Is it fear? Is it worry? Is it resentment? Is it blame? Is it hopelessness? Is it grief? Is it sadness? Like, what is it? And pausing and naming the anxiety is really what a lot of prayer is about. When it says, let your requests be made known to God, I don't know how much that is like, I think the survival brain says, well, the request is, I want that job that pays me the six figures. That will relieve all of my anxiety. Really? I mean, we think so, but is that really what needs to be dealt with? What are the core deeper issues that need to be named and brought to God? So the invitation is to name those things. And the, the thing about the gospel is that it's about knowing in a personal way. And Jesus was the exception, a personal God who invites us into a personal love relationship where we can actually talk out these issues with God. That's the amazing mystery of the gospel. And when you know that belovedness, you can find that place of peace where you can actually think clearly. But the thing that's so interesting about the culture we live in is this idea of self-love, right? We all agree that self-love is important. We ought to love ourselves. But self-love is like masturbation. Let's talk about it. It's this concept, and I'm a therapist, and I work with women, and, you know, they'll come in, well, my goal is to increase my self-love. Well, that's a great idea, but it doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in relationship. Babies learn about love. Not We know that babies who aren't loved, who have all their physical needs met, there's something called failure to thrive. If they don't have that empathetic connection of love, they just do not grow. So love and self-love develops out of relationship with others, out of a knowing our belovedness in community. And that's hard work because it means entering out of our isolation and choosing to risk, to risk going to a therapist to talk about our anxieties, to risk uh, naming it in a small group with some people at a church like New Abbey. Being in relationship leads us to internalizing the love and acceptance. And then we fail each other. People are going to fail you, people. You come to church, you share your heart, 
and somebody's going to say something stupid. It's just the truth. And you're going to leave here and be like, well, those people suck. I'm never going back to that church. That's our humanness. And the work is to find a way to name that, at least to ourselves, and acknowledge that that person is a hurting person. They're suffering. They didn't mean to hurt me. Really, people, you know, the, the, the sad news is, is that you're really not that important and that most of the stupid things people say and do to you are really not about you. I mean, that may be hard to hear because your ego really wants to be the center of the universe, but it's the truth. We don't say and do stupid things intentionally to hurt other people. We're just living out of our own fragility. So we have to choose again and, and again and again. And in a marriage, you have to keep choosing that, guys. It is not going to work any other way. How many times was I ready to leave Dave because he was saying something stupid or not doing what I wanted? But over and over again. So we choose relationship. Dave, my husband Dave, was a man who spent his entire 63 years in the church of, in, in relationship to Christ. He spent the last 36 years of his life in a daily prayer time, studying the Bible, deepening his knowledge of God. And for Dave, it was only in the last few years that he really began to grab a hold of the fact that this song that he'd been hearing all his life, the way that he'd gotten it was so not about this felt sense. He had no idea that there was this place possible of deeply inhabiting his belovedness. 63 years. It took him 60 of those years to even begin to, well, about 10 years ago, he started deconstructing. He left the church. He quit going to church. We both quit going to church and started really rethinking his whole faith journey. And it really was only in the past even six months of his life, that he was really understanding what he was calling the big G gospel. The big G is that God is love. Those who love know God. Those who do not love do not know God. But to get here, we have to go through here. And this is the messy part of naming the suffering moving toward our darkness in community with other people and doing that messy work of transformation and letting go of a lot of our survival tactics and being willing to sit in the shit of life and not be so quick to want to run to, praise God, I just went and lost my husband, and but God's going to do something great out of this. You know, I mean... I've been there at moments in the journey. I mean, it's a balancing act. We give thanks. I'm giving thanks that good things have come out of Dave's death. But you know what? Most of all, it just sucks. It's horrible. I'm so lonely at times. You know, it's just, it's just deeply painful. And yet, I, want, I believe and I trust. You know, there's a beautiful thing that says, forever I will put my trust in you. And as I abandon myself to you in love, I am assured of peace. So that's the path of faith and prayer is 
continually coming back to this place of our belovedness, and it's going to look different at different seasons in our lives. A year ago, I taught here at New Abbey about prayer, and I was talking of teaching about contemplative prayer, and I even said then that I did not find much value in words, in talking to God. This year, I cannot find that place at all. I, I, I don't have, I get to that place of trying to go sit in contemplative prayer, and I'm so full of anxiety, and I'm so full, my mind's going so fast, and I'm thinking of all the, well, what if I, what is my life going to look like? I'm going to live for another 30 years, and will I ever have another part? Will, what will happen with my job? Will I have enough money? Uh, you know, there's just a million things. So my best prayer now is actually using words and talking to God. And I'm like, whoop. You know, a year ago, I was like, yeah, I've really hit the ethos of my faith. I'm at the nirvana. And now I'm like, oh, crap, it's shitty. Life is hard. So we're going to, depending on our circumstances, we're going to need different ways to pray. But the core message of the gospel is that a God, a personal God loves us. And we may do yoga, and we may go out in nature, and we may do art and all the other things that also help us, but there is a personal God who loves us and wants to hear our hearts cry, and that's the invitation that Paul makes to us so that we can clear that field of all of that stuff, that the feelings and thoughts that oppress us, and come to a clear place of our belovedness. And then we can think on what is good and true and honorable. Because we can't think ourselves there. We have to unpack the stuff that's an obstacle to getting there. So that's the invitation. And I think that Dave, if he were here, um, his part for this community was that he loved this community and he wanted the people of this community to share his journey that say that you guys are right. It is a lot bigger. You know, it's a lot bigger, and, and wanting to tell a bigger story of the gospel is the good news. So, Dave is glad you're here. And if you want someone to pray to and ask for prayers, you can ask for Dave's prayers, too, because he's rooting for all of us to grow in love uh, with Christ and to know, um, to know that we're loved and that our lives do matter. So that's the opportunity to reclaim. And Corey's going to give us some specifics and an opportunity about how we can reclaim that, that goodness of prayer in our lives um, over the next 90 days. Standing ovation of one. I like that. That's so good. So, so Frankie, yeah, I love this. Uh, part of the work that we want to do here that we're going to close on is that we want to name what's complicated in life. We want to name the conflict. We want to name the anxiety. We want to name the worry. We want to name the resentment. We believe that prayer is a part of that. You're just not naming it for the sake of naming it, but what would it look like as a people, as a community of faith, that even over the next 90 days, that you can sit and say, this is the thing that I cannot let go of. This is the thing that I worry about the most. And what if I just tried once again to be in this place of, God, can you help me here? Uh, that every 12-step group starts with that reality, admitting that you're powerless, 
admitting that your life has become unmanageable. There's a reason that for even the most addicted people on planet Earth, you begin with a place of, maybe I can't do this all on my own. And what I need to name is the part that is unmanageable and ask God to be a part of that. So I'm going to pray. And then instead of doing our group conversation time at the end, I'm going to invite us into something else. So God, thanks for wisdom from your scriptures. Thank you for the wisdom of tradition that we're a part of. Thank you for the faithfulness of so many people who've come before us. God, thank you for people like Sissy who are in her second half of life, who've gone through some things, who've dealt with cancer, who've, her husband has died, who can speak into the reality that Jesus loves me, this I know. And it's not trite, and it's not cheesy, and it's not simple, but it's the deepest truth and reality that we have as a human being. God, would you remind us of our belovedness? God, in this space, we begin to hold on to and name the fact that we all have conflict, that we all have anxiety, that we all have worry, that we all have resentment, that we all have something that we feel like that we cannot deal with on our own. And so, God, we invite you into this process. We invite you into, yeah, the complexity of our lives and trust, God, that you're already there. And would we be able to see the ways that you're already moving? But, God, in in some way, would we reclaim what prayer is, that we wouldn't throw it away, but know that it's gotten millions and billions of people through thousands of years of history who simply say, I can't do this on my own. And God, would you be here with us? And will we trust the way that you're going to move in that, be with us, for us, and ahead of us in this process? In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So you have these envelopes around you, uh, and you're going to be answering this question. What will you be praying about the next 90 days? And so we want to do something really practical. In this envelope, you got two three-by-five cards. One of those three-by-five cards is for you to write a letter to yourself about something that you are anxious about, that you are worried about, that you're resentful about, that you don't know what to do it with, write yourself a nice little note about whatever that thing is, and you're going to seal it, and we're going to mail it back to you in 90 days. Uh, The other note card is for you to take with you and to say, this is the thing that I'm anxious about. This is the thing that I'm stressed about. This is the thing that's complicated in my life. And what I even just try and practice for the next 90 days, maybe it just sits in your car. And, And again, I'm going like super simple with this and just saying, God, help me with this. And what would that look like in a community like ours to reclaim something that's so simple that we teach every child to simply reach out and to say, of course you can't do it on your own. That's okay. That's part of what it means to be human, to admitting to your fragility, to admitting to uh, the fact that you can't, that you don't have it all figured out. So we're going to take a few minutes. We'll put a little bit of music on. You can write a nice little letter to yourself. Uh, you have another card that you get to take with you, and then we'll come back together in a few minutes. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.